Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, an historian discusses lessons to be learned from the current pandemic. Younger people in this country have this sense that things will go on inevitably as they ever had. I will always have my big screen TVs. I will always have Netflix. I will always have my phone and my car. But the world doesn't work that way. We, we have been uh, raised in, in luxury, speaking in historical terms. We've never experienced a standard of living as nice as we've had in this country for the past 50 years. And, and it gets better and better. Having said that, it's not inevitable that it goes on. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Historian author Dean Reuter is standing by with a view of the coronavirus and the quarantine through the lens of history. Are there parallels with what Americans experienced during World War II, the Great Depression, the Cold War, 9-11? Before that, just a reminder to check out the new and improved strangeplanet.ca. It's been completely redesigned. I think you'll find it much easier to navigate strangeplanet.ca. And once there, don't forget to register. Scroll down to the bottom and click on Inner Sanctum. That's my free monthly newsletter. I just need your email and then you're done. You'll start receiving Inner Sanctum every month for free in your email inbox. Strangeplanet.ca. Check it out. There's little doubt that what we're living through now with the coronavirus and the quarantine has been lived through before. Fear, panic, loss of livelihood, economic uncertainty, lineups for food, rationing, loss of mobility and other civil liberties. Here to discuss the historical parallels, the lessons to be learned and the possible lasting impact of this pandemic on our culture is author, historian Dean Reuter. Dean is General Counsel, Vice President and Director of the practice groups of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy. He's the principal author of the nonfiction book, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil, and editor of Liberty's Nemesis, The Unchecked Expansion of the State and Confronting Terror, 9-11 and the Future of American National Security. 
and currently serves as an appointee on the U.S. Commission on Presidential Scholars. He's a graduate of Hood College and the University of Maryland School of Law. Dean Reuter, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm terrific. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on again. My pleasure. So as an historian, and you look back at the way that the United States dealt with the Second World War in terms of the post-war period and, and recovering from that, can we draw any parallels between that and how we might come out of this pandemic I think we can, Richard. There, there are some similarities and there are some, I think, distinct differences uh, coming out of World War II versus coming out of coronavirus. One is sort of uh, how, how things end. You know, the, the, the end of the war, you know, the fact that Germany was going to lose, I think, became a fair certainty months before it ended. Um, not that everyone knew exactly when it would end. And uh, Japan, of course, was was even less certain than that with what, what we thought was going to be a long island hopping campaign and then an invasion of uh, an invasion of uh, Japan, a land invasion, um, which we uh, mercifully avoided. Um, so, so it's similar in the sense that coronavirus, uh, people, I think, have the sense that it's going to end, but there's not a lot of certainty and not a lot of agreement on when that will be and, and what will take place as it ends. And, and before the, the war ended, what about the fear factor? Do you see similarities between the palpable fear that people obviously had, certainly at the height of the war, when Hitler was rampaging across Europe and the Japanese were rampaging across the Pacific theater, that fear factor compared to what we're undergoing today? I think it was much greater at the time. Uh, remember, uh, w- World War II had been a long slog. It's clear the Americans got in a little bit later than the Europeans, obviously. Um, you know, you had you had one supporting element of the good versus evil, which was, uh, you know, rarely do you get um, such clear lines of good versus evil. So we had that unifying effect. You see some of that today in the coronavirus where, where people are uh, unified, we can come together and beat this. And that really is what it's going to take. Some of those lines begin to fray as, as some people want to reopen up. Others are more cautious. Um, so there's not not that exact sort of almost palpable sense of unity. Um, I would say that, you know, throughout the war, uh, the, the, some of the stark differences are, uh, you know, we had a man-made enemy. Uh, we had uh, young men uh, subject to the draft serving overseas in countries that most people at the time, you know, they'd heard of, but they'd never visited. They didn't necessarily see a clear American interest. Getting into the war was uh, sort of a, a heart-wrenching decision-making process. Lots of people didn't want to enter the war. Um, and in the end, you know, we have uh, over 400,000 uh, young men killed abroad uh, fighting in a war. Uh, now, having said that, on both sides, in Europe, on the continent, and in, in, in England, there was massive campaigns of bombing and missiles, uh, missiles going from Germany uh, to London and Antwerp and Belgium, bombing of German cities and citizens. Um, so the, the terror factor during the war was much greater than it is now. I mean, you're talking at the end of that, that, that campaign on all sides, 55 to 60 million people dead at the hands of other people. 
a real catastrophe. Right. What do you make of the way that in some quarters people have pushed back against the the quarantine? For example, in Michigan, we had people protesting at the state capitol, and we had the governor of Michigan make that comparison. During the Second World War, people weren't complaining about a suspension of civil liberties and so forth. Do you think that was a fair comment on her part? Is there a parallel there? It's, it's, a, it's a comment I would be reluctant to make, honestly. I think World War II and the Holocaust in particular, sui generis. Um, uh, th- nothing really compares to it uh, when you talk about the scope of human activity, the nature of the endeavor, the lines of good versus evil, the fact that it was a man-made element we're fighting against, uh, and the massive loss of life. Now, I mean, we can't see to the end of the coronavirus, uh, true enough, um, but 60 million, 55 million dead, that, that, that's, a, that's a catastrophe. But in terms of people being upset about the suspension of certain civil liberties, for example, in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court there just ruled that a continuance of the lockdown is unconstitutional. And so people are pushing back a little bit and governors are, I guess, a little disappointed in in that approach. Well, I think that's the way our political process works, right? And and one thing that's lacking in the coronavirus era, I think, is a real consensus on the best response and the nature of of this uh, of the virus itself. Will there be a second wave? Uh, uh, will people that have been exposed be immune? And if so, uh, what does that mean? How many people have already? And if if that's true, how many people have already had the virus, don't even know it, and are walking around with immunity? I mean, those. Those key questions um, are are still in debate, and depending on how you perceive those, you have different views on what the right course of action is. So, um, I think that sort of uncertainty is causing a lot of this debate. Having said that, I always think that debates of these kind um, sort of represent one thing that's unique about the the American system of government. We don't have a uh, traditionally command and control uh, type of decision-making process. That's one of the things you're seeing pushback against, Richard. Disasters, wars, have a way of defining a politician's term in office, obviously. You know, we think of of FDR and Truman as wartime presidents. Rudolph Giuliani was defined by 9-11 and certainly George W. Bush. And certain people, they rise to that occasion without getting too political. But when you look around at the landscape now, do you think that this pandemic has defined or molded certain political leaders in the United States? Uh, that's a good question, Richard. I, I I don't want to completely dodge that question. I really don't want to get too political. I agree with that. But I would say that, that we have such a fast moving landscape here. If you go back uh, uh, six months, you know, we were on the eve of uh, impeachment. And that was what was going to be the defining characteristic of, of this president. And before that, it was the uh, Mueller investigation or the FBI investigation. And uh, before that, it was going to be whether as a losing uh, candidate, he would respect the results of the election. So it, I, I think one of the lessons of history is it takes a while for legacies to gel. And things that seem momentous in the moment um, sometimes aren't. Um, this, I mean, coronavirus is definitely momentous and it is, it does have sort of the legacy, um, defining scope and, and power to it. Uh, having said that, I I would have thought the same thing about impeachment, uh, five months ago. So, uh, some of these are, are, are still open questions. And of course, if, if this subsides and, and if president Trump has a second term, um, you know, a, a lot can happen as we've learned in, in four years. So I think his legacy is an open question. 
because they're warning that this could come in waves and the coronavirus is likely here to stay, there will be variants of it. We could be in the age of pandemics entering into what could be a very prolonged period in our history that could go on, who knows, years and years and years, on again, off again. It sort of reminds me in a way of the Cold War, which went on for decades, and people were living under that strain Do you see any parallel there? If this goes on, the kind of effect that it will have on people emotionally, on their psyches, et cetera. I I do, Richard, uh, and that's a good point. I think this was initially seen as sort of like a snow day uh, and everybody gets to, kids get to stay home from school. People are spending time with their families. My suburban community has really become sort of like the the picture it was supposed to be, the, the brochure it's supposed to be when they're building this community. There are kids in the street, people on bicycles, people flying kites, uh, you know, everybody's outdoors keeping a distance. But the cumulative effect of this, that begins to wear off. And um, it, it becomes uh, a real problem very quickly for people who um, are living week to week, who are no longer working. Now, some people are able to work from home, um, and they, they don't they don't quite feel it yet. Um, but there are lots of people in this country who are without a paycheck and who don't have a lot of savings. And it's it's a it's an immediate issue for those sorts of people. And of course, the ripple effects of that are tremendous when you have uh, people who are operating at that level who are no longer than um, using services from other people. Um, and, and then you get to see this larger economic collapse. And I think, you know, I, I don't think the country is sustainable uh, without a, a solid workforce doing things, being productive. Um, we, we can't have, we cannot sustain 30 or 40 or 50 million people unemployed for, for an extended period of time. That's clear to me. I think that's what's driving some of the, um, uh, some of the push to reopen at, at the level of the, the state leaders. But do you think it could have sort of far-reaching, emotional, psychological consequences for a vast swath of the population, just as people were living under the fear during the Cold War? I I do, Richard. I do. Uh, You know, some of that depends on how it turns. I think the economic impact and the work from home, quote unquote, the social distancing, the isolation, I think that will will develop its own sense of strain. Uh, if, If people on a personal level really fear infection and fear death, Oh, and serious illness, that's a second kind of strain and, and stress. So both of those have long-term cumulative effects um, on individuals and then therefore on the larger population. So, I mean, the answer to that is yes. And and you can look at children. I mean, when I was growing up, it was sort of the duck and cover era where we were taught to get under our chairs, um, you know, if, because there was going to be a nuclear uh, bomb coming over from Russia and a missile. And, and that's frightening for children. Um, I mean, my kids were, were raised in the era of global warming, and if we don't pay attention, the seas are going to overrun uh, the land, and, and you know, the, 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 the world would be an inhospitable place. Um, this is a different sort of strain, um, and it, it has a very real aspect to it. So I, I agree. I think that's a good point, that um, th- this does begin to, to take its toll on people. How can it, or how do you foresee it, changing the culture in a post-pandemic world, people are saying, well, we'll never shake hands again and these sorts of things, which is significant. I mean, we've been shaking hands for, what, 5,000 years. But what are some fundamental cultural changes do you foresee on the horizon in a post-pandemic world? 
Yeah, another good question, Richard. I, I think some of these things are very fleeting. I mean, you think back to 9-11. We were attacked uh, by, by terrorists. There was this great coming together. Um, there was... Um, a moment of absolute unity where everyone seemed to be on the same page and you could imagine that feeling being sustained for a long time going forward but that began to come undone pretty quickly um as as did the feelings of absolute terror i was in washington then and you know there were humvees with 50 caliber machine guns on the on the corners and in some intersections and certainly by the pentagon and um you know you, th- you had the feeling in the moment that, that that you would never get back to normal and yet we did Having said that, I think this does change a few things. Um, uh, some in, in, in an interesting way, I think this work from home period uh, is going to have a real effect. I think people are finding out exactly how productive they can and can't be working from home. And I think a lot of jobs and offices are going to be experience some realignment in terms of work habits um, and work locations. I think that's one big change. Um, I, I hope, uh, I pray that we're not going to become socially isolated, that people are not going to um, see each other and, and associate with each other. And, uh, you know, Tocqueville uh, really put a lot of stock in American civil, civil institutions as a way of, um, you know, uh, provoking social change and cementing society and the importance of people getting together, whether it's whether you're in a bowling league or a church or the um, uh, American Legion or at your office. These are places we all gather, we collect, we share information, we share stories, uh, we become co-workers and friends and colleagues. Uh, and if that goes away, uh, that, that, that would be a real game changer. Um, I think some of that will diminish, but uh, I don't think it will go away, Richard. More of my conversation with author, historian, Dean Reuter, when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Since the mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking ESS-60, the purest form of carbon-60, we're thrilled to tell you we're both sleeping well and pain-free. ESS-60 is raw carbon-60 that's been produced, certified, and guaranteed for safer human consumption. C60 is a mega antioxidant and is known to have 172 times the antioxidant power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS60 is the carbon 60 formulation used in the 2012 original Paris study that showed ESS60 doubled the lifespan of rats. That's right, doubled their lifespan. I'm so proud to be associated with my good friends at c60evo.com. Their scientists invented the only reactor machine of its kind to produce carbon-60 back in 1991. They've been a top producer and distributor of C60 worldwide ever since, and the demand has been astounding. ESS-60 from C60Evo.com is available in 4, 8, 16, and 32-ounce bottles. Choose from single bottles, monthly subscriptions, or cases of 12 bottles. ESS-60, the purest form of carbon-60 available. Get yours at c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1 c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1 use the promo code rs1spec rs1spec to get 5% off ESS60 from c60evo.com if there's one thing money can't buy it's sanity (laughs) 
Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Dean Reuter is the author of The Hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. And we're discussing lessons to be learned from the lockdown, historical parallels, and life in a post-pandemic world. And what of the future of large sporting events and large cultural events like concerts? Well, it's been interesting to see some of those things. I mean, uh, I, I have been to a couple conferences, quote unquote, in the work from home era, and Zoom becomes the platform or some other uh, internet platform form. So, uh, you know, spectator sports now, um, if if provided the athletes can can um, uh, engage with one another at that level, uh, you know. Most of the people watching professional sports nowadays are not watching it live in person. They're watching it on TV or on uh, internet, uh, on YouTube or something like that. Uh, so you don't need a live audience. Of course, to have sports, you need uh, close engagement of people, at least, you know, for a football, you know, 60 guys on one sideline, 60 on another for, um, you know, some other sports, a- acrobatics and gymnastics. Um, tech, but, um I don't think you need to have the audience there. It is a different sort of experience. Um, of course, live music and live entertainment, uh, different sort of experience. But uh, you know, everyone thought that uh, movies, you know, big Hollywood would uh, sort of expire as movies went online. And it, it changed the format. Uh, you've seen music change. You've seen books. I mean, <laughs> I wrote The Hidden Nazi. And, uh, you know, when, when I started writing books, even 10 years ago, um, you, you didn't want a digital version of a book. You wanted people to pick up a, a hard copy. Now, uh, in the COVID era, you, you can buy books, um, not just have them delivered to your door, of course, but you can get a, a, a virtual version. You can get a Kindle edition or even an audible version delivered to your computer within minutes. Um, so uh, some things, I, there's going to be change. I think some of them will actually be in a more positive direction. You never want to have a catastrophe like this to, to spur that kind of change, but um, it, it's moving the needle in some ways um, unexpectedly um, and, and not not entirely um, bad ways in some, some senses. I mean, some people will work from home that sh- probably should have been working from home or could have been working from home before. Yes, I do want to talk about some of the uh, the upsides, but as an historian, and I want to talk about certain artifacts uh, you mentioned Zoom, and I, unfortunately, uh, well, part of life, but I attended two virtual <laughs> funerals. They were funerals that we we attended through Zoom. Yes, people are s- celebrating birthday parties on Zoom, and that's that's fine. But the the Zoom funeral, I certainly is a, I hope is an artifact that is relegated to this unusual period. But as an historian, what other artifacts do you find? maybe most intriguing. Like, I, I know that there were songs that came out of the Spanish influenza and different things. Anything stand out as interesting historical artifacts from this period? I, I think it's a little too early um, to, to, to notice those. I mean, there are things people are expecting. You know, you hear about, well, with the stay-at-home era, lots of, we're going to expect lots of babies in the next, you know, nine months. Um, now, I guess the next six to, to nine months. Um, and uh, you know, 13 years from now, they'll be called um, quarantines. Um, <laughs> uh, so you'll you'll see things like that. But I, I think it's too early to look around for uh, for those sorts of artifacts just yet. Um, we do live in interesting times. And um, I mean, I, I've seen little, I guess, parodies of Zoom conferences. And, and it is sort of interesting the way people are 
interacting and interacting together and all sort of going through the same experience at the same time. I think there's an acute awareness of that in a way there wasn't uh, before this. We were all going about our same, you know, day jobs, living the same experiences in a large way. But this is something that's uncommonly and acutely shared with 99% of the people in this country. And, you know, we're living in different circumstances, you know, we're experiencing it differently, but we all have this sense of going through it. We're all wearing gloves or masks or, you know, keeping social distance and not working or doing whatever. But I think there is a very shared moment here. I don't know how long that lasts and, and how long it takes to come undone. I mentioned the Zoom funerals, a couple of other things that stand out. I, I will, I think, always remember the surgical masks hanging from people's rear view mirrors inside their cars. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the directional arrows on the grocery store uh, aisles. So we just got those, Richard. We didn't have them until last week. But And I'll show you one really personal story with you. My father uh, is 85 years old and, and his health collapsed rather quickly and unexpectedly. And he's been in the hospital for over three weeks now. And I was able to you know, put air quotes around visit, visit him recently. And what that meant was uh, standing outside a, a hospital um, entrance and they wheeled him up on a gurney to the window and he had a cell phone and I had a cell phone and we sat, it was more akin to a, a prison visit than a hospital visit, but um, that that's what uh, the, the hospital officials think is necessary. Um, but I've also heard of people who, uh, you know, have a, a spouse or loved one on, on their deathbed in a hospital and they're not, they're not permitted to visit. So there are some very troubling aspects. Yes, that's just heart-wrenching to think of people dying, not necessarily alone, but with strangers. So the upside here, what do you foresee as the, the huge opportunities in a post-pandemic world for people? One one is is one that we didn't sustain after 9-11, and that's a sense of unity. And I hope, despite disagreements about when we should reopen or how we should reopen, how aggressive we should be, I, I do hope that people come out of this with uh, what I described as that shared moment, and and that can be sustained. Uh, I, it's it does have a feel in my community. People are waving, they're smiling. It's there's a knowing sense of of having gone through something together. Um, that is hard to sustain. I hope I really do hope we can sustain that. Um, and, and there's a sense of of being helpful. Um, you know, you can't run up to somebody and pick up their groceries when they drop them. I, I suppose, but uh, people are being helpful in other ways. They're being courteous. I think they're taking extra measures to try to be kind. That that's one of the upsides. The other upside, I think, is just the general work day. And I, I mentioned this before. Uh, there's an opportunity here to reexamine. Um, some of the costly ways we interact with each other. I, I commute um, an hour a day to get to my job, and I have found that without that, uh, I can be productive. There are definitely costs to it, um, but there are benefits for it. And I imagine everybody's experiencing that differently. Um, I think also in a perhaps a humorous way, uh, teachers are going to be more highly valued. I, I saw a, an internet meme somebody would written on their car uh, you lied. My son is not a joy to have in class. Um, so I, I think parents are are, are going to be more um, uh, respectful of, of teachers and homeschoolers as well. Indeed. The economic recovery, how typically does that go? We hear a lot about U-curves these days, post-Second World War. Describe the uh, the economic re recovery in the United States. Was it a U or was it a V? 
I, so I think it was more of a, a you. And, you know, the, it, was, it was an odd time because we were coming out of depression as we went into the war. We were a power, the United States was, that is. Um, but after the war, I, I think we were fairly perceived as a savior. Uh, I mentioned that we were slow to get into the war. But even before that, we were converting our economy uh, to a wartime economy where our industry was uh, moving away from automobiles and starting to make tanks and airplanes and ships um, and uh, ammunition and weapons of all kinds. Uh, and when we finally did get in the war, or when the Japanese got us into the war and bombed Pearl Harbor and then Germany declared war on us, we were at war, uh, whether we wanted to be or not. Um, our economy you know, was, in, was in fairly good shape and we were well set up uh, to convert to the wartime economy. Um, and then after the war, we we were perceived as something of a savior and be, and really walked into a superpower role uh, that we still enjoy today. So uh, our, our economy, it wasn't quite fits and starts, but it's clear. And you know, so one of the things I talk about in, in the book, The Hidden Nazi, we got the, the rocket scientists here because uh, this guy, the Hidden Nazi, delivered them to us. But the German scientists, the German technicians, the German leadership, they wanted to come to the United States as opposed to going to Russia, certainly. But of the Western allies, when they had their choice, they came to the U.S., not to Great Britain, not to France, because everybody thought the United States would be the post-war superpower and industrial and economic powerhouse. And that's what it became. And we, we experienced uh, a period of, of growth um, and I don't want to say resurgence because that started before the end of the war, um, but prosperity, absolutely. And especially if you go back um, to the to the Great Depression, the, the years before the war. Well, it looks like we could be in a depression if this carries on much longer, a global depression. How do you see us coming out of this? A quick recovery, a, a, a lengthy, painful recovery? It, you know, uh, Richard, I think it really depends on how long this goes on. I do fear that people, especially younger people in this country, have this sense that things will go on inevitably as they ever had. I will always have my big screen TVs. I will always have Netflix. I will always have my phone and my car and, uh, you know, unlimited supplies of gasoline. Uh, but the world doesn't work that way. We, we have been uh, raised in, in luxury, um, you know, in, in speaking in historical terms. Uh, you know, we've never experienced a standard of living as as uh, nice as we've had in this country for the past 50 years um, and, and it gets better and better having said that it's it's not inevitable that it goes on uh, things are uh, not assured to keep going on and on the, the supplies of money are not endless um, so I think that that there is a long period of recovery coming out of this, and it's not just about people who have seen their 401ks or 403bs uh, cut in half or cut in you know cut by a third. Um, there are long-term consequences when this many people are out of work for this long. Um, so many businesses in this country are correctly um, you know set up on very thin margins, um, and and if they're not making their monthly nut, uh, things begin to fall apart. And then, you know, those are places that are paying rent to landlords who are invested in the community, who are providing home loans uh, through the bank, et cetera, et cetera. And that money dries up. So uh, I, I think things are pretty precarious, Richard. 
For those who, who missed our last conversation, uh, spend a few moments and, and tell people about the hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. Sure, Richard. Thank you. Um, yeah, th- it is a it is a nonfiction book about a Nazi SS general. I think one of the worst people uh, ever put on earth. Uh, not only was he evil, though he was very powerful. He, uh, I don't think the Holocaust would have been possible without him. Um, he went on after uh, helping implement the Holocaust to rule all of Germany's weapons, including their nuclear weapons, but also including their vengeance weapons, the rockets. I mentioned that we inherited, we got the rocket team. A lot of people, convention his, conventional history even says that uh, we sort of stumbled on the rocket team. But as we show in the hidden Nazi, we got them because this Nazi general, Hans Kammler, delivered them to the U.S. Army. And, and the question becomes, why did he do that? He did that to try and erase his Holocaust past, to rehabilitate his own career, save his own life. Uh, the problem with that theory is at the end of the war, again, according to conventional history, he walks off into the woods and shoots and kills himself. But our researchers, my co-authors and researchers, we prove that uh, with U.S. government documents, Richard, that he didn't kill himself at the end of the war. He actually surrendered to the U.S. Army. So it's sort of a startling, um, epic sweep of history uh, focused on this one Nazi general who evaded uh, justice and evaded history. And how do people get a hold of a copy of uh, The Hidden Nazi? Well, in good times, you could go to a bookstore, depending on what state you live in. A- any place you're in right now, you can just order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. It's in hardback. I think I mentioned it's in, you can get the Kindle version, the Audible version. So it's uh, it's everywhere online, Richard, and it's it's being really well received. So I'm very pleased about that. Dean, thanks as always for spending some time. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back on the other side with a few details on an upcoming episode. It's time once again to bring in Colleen Forgus, our nutritional therapist and the manager at the Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hello once again, Colleen. How are you? Fantastic, Richard. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. You know, I'm getting emails from older gentlemen wondering about the full script dispensary and what we have to offer in terms of prostate health and prostate function. Yes, and this is a really common issue as men age. And the product I recommend to many of my clients is called Sal Palmetto, S-A-W, Palmetto, and it's by Yaro Formulas. This product is designed to support the prostate health, which is good for urinary and bladder function, as well as sexual function. And those things are just part of the normal aging process, but Sal Palmetto is a great product to help men as they're aging. Fantastic. Sal Palmetto for your prostate. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you, Richard. Take care. To get your Saul Palmetto, go to strangeplanet.ca and then click on the full script dispensary button. Remember, orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, author, historian, medical researcher, Forrest Moretti joins me to discuss authoritative overreach during the pandemic and the prospect of a mandatory vaccine. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. 
new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>